Good evening and welcome uh, to this panel discussion um, on the new leadership in China. Is that what's called? Anyway, yes, it is on the new leadership in China. Yeah. Um, I'm Stefan Feuchtwang. I'm uh, an anthropologist, so I prefer to look at China from the bottom up rather than from the top down, but this will be more a top down kind of discussion. Um, we have three panelists here uh, who I'll introduce in a second. The format will be that they have between 10 and 15 minutes each after I've said a few words of introduction. And then it's open to all of you to make your own contributions to the discussion or raise questions from the panelists or from each other. So um, I'll be a, as strict chair as I can, but also as um, stimulating a chair. If you don't ask questions, I will. Um, the, 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 um, the new leadership uh, is in position, but there's a National People's Congress in in, uh, next month so it's a sort of um, it's very new um, and the question is whether I mean one question is what can we tell from the past of the various members of the standing <coughs> committee of the Politburo what they will do um, so for instance the number two Li Keqiang um, was uh, co-author with the World Bank of a very important report on China in 2030. Um, the policy of reduction of in, uh, inequalities has been part of the was part of the previous regime. Will it continue? Uh, it had a mini, mini success in that the Gini coefficient for inequality went down for the first time last year. Um, but it's still enormously high. Uh, um, there is the promise in a speech by Xi Jinping that uh, power needs to be put into <coughs> his words, cage of the constitution. And there has been a major intervention with a lot of uh, signatories uh, from fairly senior intellectuals, including the including the um, editor of a bi-weekly journal published by the Party University saying that the Constitution should, he should, you know, he should live up to his word and that it, the law should become very much more important. And the absence uh, from the Standing Committee of the Politburo of a post that used to be there, who was the chair of the Supreme Court, um, promises possibly that the Constitution will be given more to say about corruption, for instance. But on the other hand, um, <coughs> local judges are appointed to a large extent by local parties. Um, so the question is, will, will there be change in favour of the law? Will there be change in reduction of inequalities? And will there be any change in foreign policy? Um, the speakers that I have beside me 
and in the order in which they will speak, are Professor Arna Westad, who is, um, what are you, the head of ideas, co-director, your co-director of ideas, and your professor of international history. He's the author of a recent book, uh, which is a historical book. It's called Restless Empire, China and the World Since 1750. It's published by Basic Books, or Bodley Head, same publisher. Um, and uh, and he has, he's got a long established uh, history uh, on his CV of publications on the history of China's international relations. The second speaker will be Atar Hussain, who is the director of the Asia Research Center, which is these two organizations, Ideas and the Asia Research Center, are uh, your host. Um, And uh, Atar Hussain has done one of the most remarkable uh, academic feats that I know of living on his research uh, funding and his research for the past 25 years, I think. Hasn't, um, it, it is extraordinary. He's published an enormous amount. He's been an advisor to a huge number of um, economic institutions, including um, government institutions in, in China, uh, but also does work for the Asia Development Bank and various other international organizations. So that's Atta Hussein. And then, um, and we're all fairly old, but, but I'm getting older. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ma Pibin is, is our youngster. Um, he's he's an, e- an economic historian um, and, uh, and has written quite a lot about uh, the law and economics in, 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 in Chinese, recent Chinese history, but recent means including the Qing dynasty. Um, uh, and uh, he'll be speaking <coughs> third. Um, and if they haven't covered the topics that I think they should cover, I hope you'll prompt them to do so. And if you don't, I will. So I open the floor to Anna. Thank you very much, Stefan. Good, good to be here. Good to be here with some old friends and to be able to talk this too. Now, I'm just going to say a few words um, to start with. A few words in part also because I have a stinking cold as I proceed. Um, on the question, first and foremost, what is it that differentiates this leadership from the previous leadership? And the answer to that question is not much. Uh, they represent the same interests, broadly speaking. They come, of course, out of the same kind of party training. Um, uh, they are loyal to the party. They are wedded to the continuation of the one-party state in China. That's the most important thing to know about them. The generational differences play a little bit of a role. I think in, in, in Xi Jinping, you'll get a somewhat more hands-on leader. Um, he's, he's a cautious careful man, shown it through all of his career, but he isn't entirely wooden uh, like the, the former president uh, or still the president soon to be former president Hu Jintao I mean, you know, he, he, he comes across as a human being at times um, I think his leadership still will be more hands-on um, particularly in some areas, parts of the economy 
we can talk more about that later on. Uh, probably also in foreign affairs. I think we've already seen that since he took over as head of the, as head of the party. He's more directly personally involved in some of those issues. Um, of course, what happens in a transition in China, not that we had many of them, but we, we saw a little bit of this in the last round uh, when Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao took over, is that new people will also come into the central committee apparatus in terms of you know, the, the people who really run China. I mean, that, those are not the people in the ministries, as you will know. They are, they are the people that are close to power around the Politburo and the, and the State Council, the Party Secretariat. Those are the, those are the people that you really need to watch. And they will be changed. I mean, I think there's little doubt about that. They will be changed generationally, but also in terms of people who have worked with a new set of leaders earlier on. It's a little bit like a U.S. presidential transition. But not entirely, of course, because you know, there's no electoral mandate that they shifted here at all. But they are keen on getting their own people in place. I'd be interested in hearing reflections from the others, in party terms, why it seems that he has taken his good time in getting some of his key people transferred over to positions in the Jungnan High. I mean, it's taken much longer than man many people expected in the field that I'm mostly interested in uh, as an historian of international affairs, namely China's relations with other countries, um, they're still basically running on the same group uh, that um, advised uh, Hu Jintao. So be interesting to watch what happens there. Now, what are the challenges? Some of the challenges are enormous, as, as, as all of you will know. I think most of them are domestic. Um, many of them, though not all of them, are connected to the economy how to deal with an economy that for various reasons, and again, I would argue most of them domestic rather than international, um, is slowing down. I'm not among those who foresee the coming crash of the Chinese economy. I think the Chinese economy is going to continue to grow. It's going to have very healthy growth rates, particularly by, in terms of international comparisons. But they're going to be less spectacular than what we've seen over the last decade, which is quite natural <coughs> in many ways. But the party needs to get used to that, particularly because um, so much of its legitimacy has been based on the enormous economic progress that has been made. Um, there are enormous challenges in terms of legitimacy outside of the economic sector. China needs to become a much more pluralistic, much more open country than what it is today, for its own sake, not for our, our sake, um, because it is connected up to many of the transitions that China will have to go through as the economy slows down. And... Uh, issues that Stefan referred to in terms of equality, or rather the lack of equality, will have to be handled within a political system that gives some degree of opening for dissent. Uh, if not, very bad things could happen in China in terms of its political future. Now, on foreign affairs, there's three points, um, because I don't want to take too much time, Stefan. Um, China's foreign policy within its own region, which is what really matters, in my view, over the past two years, has been a bit of a disaster. Um, China's moved away, uh, for reasons that we can discuss later, from what was basically the, the Deng Xiaoping line in international affairs, which was to try to work with its neighbors. To some extent, I think, ba basing oneself on the experience of the 20th century, particularly uh, the history of other rising powers, um, to try to integrate mm. the countries that were around into China's rise. Rising tide lifts all boats, etc., etc. Um, that worked to some extent um, up to the late 2000s, and then it's gone downhill ever since. 
And it's gone downhill mainly because of what the Chinese government itself has, has done with regard to Southeast Asia, with regard to ASEAN, on, on the South China Sea question, but not only that, in the relationship to Japan, crucial for China. One of the things that I write about in the, in the book that Stefan referred to, Restless Empire, is about that, about how important this relationship is. And what have these guys done? Well, they've taken a policy of rivalry within the region, and they have driven it so far towards confrontation, of course, helped by the Japanese at their end, but you know, my concern here is with China, um, that the relationship has become almost impossible to manage. Um, and in effect, what they've done by doing that is to make sure that for all foreseeable future, Japan will remain a uh, close ally of the United States, yeah. an unsinkable aircraft carrier uh, for the United States right off the coast of continental Asia. Um, it's also, by the way, had a very significant uh, uh, impact on the election of a very conservative Japanese administration under Abe, who is in, who is in place now. So things have not really worked out well, it, certainly in terms of the near abroad, if you could call it that, for China's foreign policy. Why did they do it? I, I wrote a piece in the New York Times about this some, a couple of weeks ago, imperial overstretch, thinking they had got it right in 2008 when the rest of the world had got it wrong and now they could do things they, they couldn't do before. I don't know. I mean, you know, when I discuss it in Beijing, I don't get any good answers. What I do know is that the fallout has been pretty bad and that Xi Jinping and the people who advise him on foreign affairs will have to deal with that as a matter of priority because they cannot, for China's own sake, allow these crucial relations with Japan and with Southeast Asia to get much worse than what they are today. I think that's what I, what I had to say to begin with. Good. Thank you. So, disastrous foreign policy. That's one start. Now, what are you going to say, Adam? Uh, I'm not going to talk about foreign policy <coughs> otherwise. But let me first start and say what is uh, important about this change of leadership. In China's 63-year-old history, political history of PRC, this is the second orderly transition of leadership. All other positions, which might seem surprising, so few. So in some sense, China is getting to a stage of rule governed and orderly change of leadership, and which is where the term of office is actually limited. So it's been a great development. We are at the crossroads of two changes, that is, at the end of a decade, where uh, being vacated by one set of leaders, and we are seeing the incoming political decade where China would be governed by another leadership. So the question you would like to ask is, how would we assess the outgoing leadership? And what do we expect of the incoming leadership? So in general, the verdict or assessment outside China of the outgoing leadership is not very flattering. That is, the basic thing is that the outgoing leadership, when it faces difficult issues, it actually shows stability rather than uh, boldness in actually dealing with those problems especially problems concerning national minorities and some of the other international issues. In terms of what this leadership would be like, if you look at the experience, it's a pretty experienced leadership. Xi Jinping has been 
governor of two coastal provinces, both of Fujian and Zhejiang, and so he has a very extensive experience. And also they have been prepared for the present role in leadership about five years, at least five years before they assumed office. So uh, as international experiences go, is actually a pretty long period of apprenticeship. But let me just say, if you look for the next 10 years, what are the main issues which would single out China would face and the leaders have to deal with? I'm not, I'm not going to mention foreign policy and China's relations with Japan and the United States, but I think that I would single out the most important change in China has taken place is 51% of Chinese population now is urban. So for the first time in China's long history, is China would be a predominantly urban society. And this process of urbanization is going to go on apace. So I would say that whatever social and economic problems you can think of China, they're deeply influenced by the process of urbanization. So the most important social and political issue I would single out would be how to absorb these 220 or 300 million migrants who effectively in their own country are treated as foreigners or strangers. It poses a problem of considerable magnitude and it would require sort of certain amount of boldness in actually dealing with that issue. I think that the other issue which is important is inequality. So this leadership will not be the first to say growing inequality is a major problem in China. The question is, what do you do about it? There have been some changes, as Stephen Feuchtwan pointed out, that China has been developing social security system and is actually accelerated. Many of the social security schemes have been brought forward by the previous government. So that process will continue, and by 2020, China will probably almost achieve the objective of building an integrated, I would not say integrated system, but a comprehensive system of social security which is covering the whole population. What, what can we expect of the new leadership? So let me mention two f facts. Obviously, you can always look at and take a pessimistic and optimistic view. So wh when I've been reading about literature on the new leadership change, some people say China faces great problems and they doubt the ability of the Chinese leadership to actually deal with those problems. I've been in the field of Chinese studies not for very long, but at least 25 years, and people have been predicting disaster in, in China since, since the early 80s. So I've become a bit suspicious of actually predictions of disaster. So let me make a fairly simple statement that the rate of growth in Chinese economy is going to slow down. But it does not require a great economic genius to predict that. That's what economists would actually expect. And it may not be passing for rate of growth to slow down because you can argue that very fast rates of growth are actually not good for equality because it generates sort of profitable opportunities 
for a very small group of people. So it may be actually better. So we almost take it for granted that a slowdown in growth rate means political disaster. In fact, it doesn't. And, uh, often examples are pointed out that some of the greatest upheavals in history have occurred when living standards were increasing rather than declining. Well, the story is that upheavals happen when the economy is doing well or sometimes not doing well, so you can cite birth condition. Let me mention one thing which will be important in the performance of the incoming leadership is obviously Johnny, John Secretary of the Communist Party of China has a great deal of power. But on the other hand, precisely, the agenda is very, very long. So it, it, it's impossible for one person, even if you were capable of dealing with, to deal with all those issues. So the crucial thing is what are the issues which the top leadership picks up to actually introduce reform. So, so this is what I would say some long-term planning and clear view of what needs to be achieved over 10 years would play a crucial role. So let me mention that one thing people praise about Jurungi, who was previous Prime Minister, is that he had a very clear idea of what he wanted to achieve, and that's really why he succeeded. But it's often said that the same clarity of vision was lacking in Wenjiabao. So it, it crucially depends on what the Li uh, Keqiang, the incoming Prime Minister, is like. Well, from all uh, uh, reports, he seems to be more sort of clear-headed and very definite about the agenda of reform. The second other thing I'd point out, that if you look at the composition of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, out of seven members, five are going to retire, step down after the next party congress. So it means that it gives the present leaders a huge power because in actually appointing the people, their own people, uh, within the sort of midterm of their, uh, their particular rule. So let me, I think I'll take up some of these questions, uh, question and answer, and just finish with one thing, is that the incoming leader, Xi Jinping, gave very somber warning about the corrosive effect of corruption on party legitimacy and the one-party rule. Well, this is not new. You, you go back to three or four Congresses, every incoming party leader has painted some picture about corruption. So if you want to go further, you have to ask questions, what is new and what does this somber speech actually result in combating corruption. So I'd end with just one comment. The striking thing about fighting with corruption is really uh, killing a chicken to scare the monkey. But some people would say it neither scares the chicken nor the monkey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, I think I will follow up probably uh, briefly what 
these two uh, panels have talked about. I won't repeat what was already said. And first of all, I want to say very quickly, I'm, I'm an economist actually teaching long-term economic development, so this is talking about contemporary. <coughs> I actually teach a course here on economic history of China all the way from the Opium War until now, exactly in this room, but I don't think any of my students were here. <laughs> anyway, I don't know what that means. Um, but I was actually at the last panel when we're talking about the transition of power to Hu Jintao. Uh, let me go very, very quickly. I think what I... What I'm interested in is actually talking a bit more about what was happening in the last few months when right. it took power over power. The thing that was quite striking to some degree, this is the third time power was transferred. If you remember the first time, the, well, if you count that as the first time, when Jiang Zemin became the party secretary, and he looked completely glum when he was sitting yeah. on this, because nobody believed he could last. And he, was, he came on the heels of the crackdown on Tiananmen Square, and I think there was a memoir written by someone, even his wife was moaning to him that, you know, this is really, you are, you're the wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, but, but he survived. He actually made a, made a, a very good, good career out of it. And I think Fu Jintao was certainly emerging stronger, but still I think they paid a lot of respects to the previous leaders and so on. So when this group of leaders come, came to power, I mean, the idea, Xi Jinping, as we know, was a princely. His father was a very high-ranking official. And that part of the idea that he could be relatively conservative. Now, it's very hard to read, as we know, the process in China. Chinese politics was not transparent. It's really hard to read where everything's going. But I guess let me maybe put it a little bit optimistic, right? Looking at the first couple of months that they've been in power, there's actually a fairly encouraging sign. So, um, so I will run down very quickly. One thing Xi Jinping made it very, very clear by visiting some of you following you by visiting Shenzhen, which is the place where Deng Xiaoping visited in 1992, to make a very clear signal that we're going to further, further reform. Uh, the other event, again, that was going on, some of you have been reading it all over the news as well, outside China, is this whole uproar over this editorial issue of uh, the Southern Weekend, the Nanfanzhou War. And, and the whole, it, uh, this is about, you know, it's, it's a fairly routine in China, the, the censored newspapers, the they took out, you know, replaced another editorial. Southern Weekend, which is the most outspoken newspaper in China, obviously they have the guts to be, to be mad about it. They actually made a claim that, you know, how did you dare to replace our editorial? And also, not only that, the editorial, I think the propaganda ministry put, has all these factual errors, so they reduced the quality of the newspaper and so on. And the other thing I think that's, so, but, but the striking thing about this is that the government didn't really come out and, and crack down completely. Actually, it was a compromise that worked out. So that, to some degree, is quite striking. We, whether that will become an important precedent, uh, we don't know. There's all kinds of other signs. I think recently, Xi Jinping actually met with people from the other parties, the, sometimes he called these well. Democratic Party. Yeah. Wallflowers or something that they are, they are for sure. Wilt. But whatever it is, he, he invited them to give criticism on the on the on the party on the Communist Party. The anti-corruption campaign, I completely agree. There's um, you know actually someone like Huang Qishan was in charge of it. Um, it was nothing new, but it was done. This time it was done in a slightly different fashion, probably with the internet. And every time somebody exposed something on the internet they actually would go for it and, and expose that person. So that became something was was quite dramatic in many ways. And, and I completely agree that you know it was still launched in a way that, like all the previous uh, 
campaigns. So I do think there, are, there seem to be new signs coming out, and the time is too short. I'm, I'm concerned the fact that these people are taking over in, in this a process where continuity and stability was emphasized. I, I, in my view, that was quite remarkable and, mm-hmm. and, and much more daring, for example, than what Hu Jinping and, and Hun Jiapao have, have done. Uh, I think I want to you know, uh, emphasize that it will be very interesting, interesting to see what's going to come next because the way, in my view, within the system, they're heading in the wrong direction. Uh, sorry, they're heading in the right direction. <laughs> you sure? Be very careful. <laughs> Otherwise, they, they are heading in the right direction. But, I mean, how, how far can you go within the system? Look at this whole anti-corruption campaign. You know, it was quite remarkable. I mean, the, some of you who follow the news, there's this whole thing about this bureaucrat was caught, obviously sleeping with a very young woman, and was videotaped and so on. And, and, uh, and then the person was, was uh, you know, going through all kinds of punishment. But it turned out, you know, more and more evidence coming out that this woman was basically set up by a very powerful business group and a videotape her <coughs> with another, I don't know, five or ten officials. So it was an extortion uh, scheme that was involved. Well, the, the point I was saying here, without some sort of due process, relying on internet, uh, you could very quickly deteriorate into some type of mob rule and mob justice. And this is the direction they need to slowly get out of it. You know, if you look at all these anti-corruption campaigns that was going on, at the same time we heard news about internet hacking of New York Times, and you know, that were reporting some type of news. So I think you know, it's, it will be really interesting to see where, where they, were, they were going. I will, I will comment very quickly on the foreign policy area. I think uh, Anir has already talked about. I completely agree that, to some degree, uh, in my view, Hu Jintao and, and, and Wen Jiabao, in many ways, handled foreign affairs uh, not, not particularly well. And I hope they would do better. And I think, again, I want to play this, this optimism too a bit further. Uh, one of the things that, you know, Xi Jinping has spent a year in the U.S., out of all the places, ours, you know, um, and he was quite fond of the place. Ali right. Kerchang was completely fluent in English language, and they, they, they made this news report about his wife, who actually has a PhD in English literature, who is a, who is a professor on American, some obscure writer, but maybe not obscure to other people. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Li Kerchang actually uh, sort of had a controversy where he went to Hong Kong, he delivered a speech in English, uh, which I guess something he shouldn't be doing as a, as a prime minister and so on. Uh, so I think compared to Hu Jintao, I think Anir mentioned it very, very clearly that if you look at Hu Jintao on the international stage, he was, he was a very much a wooden, a very awkward figure. You know, compared with Jiang Zemin, you know, who would invite Hillary Clinton to dance and play piano and all of that. Uh, it, was a, it was a huge contrast. So I, I think perhaps Xi Jinping and, and Li Keqiang will play out a bit better. Uh, they understand the outside world a bit better. Right? Although there's the still issue of foreign policy was fairly low on the agenda. I think on the affair, I completely agree with on it. The, the whole disputes with Japan, now, uh, again, I guess we are both historians. You have to be very, very careful. You do not let this whole agenda be hijacked by ultra-nationalists who had a version of history or who insisted on their own version of history. And as we read history now, we realize there are a lot of problems with the history was presented. And it's, it's very tricky when you go out saying my version <coughs> history is the only correct one. I 
that's where part of the problem <coughs> is coming from. Now, I'm not saying that you know, there's certainly a problem with the Japanese attitude towards the Second War and all of that, but there's a much larger strategic economic interest that was involved at some, some kind of a framework. If you look at the core interest defined by Hu Jintao government, you know, the, what they call the core interest of the Hershey it's all completely national sovereign. I mean, China being the world's second largest economy, being the biggest guy in the area, it's much more important to have a common framework where all parties could, could benefit, not just to, you know, I'm here all claiming my, my sovereignty. I don't Me care first. what was going on, you know, don't touch Japan, don't touch Taiwan, and all of that. I think, I think to a certain degree, and again, it's so probably legacy history, you know, the, the mentality that China was a victim of imperialism, all of that, so we need to come and claim back. I think the biggest threat now we realize is actually, in my view, is, is North Korea. That's something is, is much more important on the agenda, and so on. So, Yes, on, on that note, I think I'd better finish. Well, thank you. That's, that's uh, wonderful. We have uh, almost an hour for you um, to actually have your word and make your opinions known as well as your um, questions to any of the panelists. I don't see any hands up. Yes, there's a hand. Okay, you're first. Ginger hair. <laughs> Because Huang Jing in his book on factionalism in China makes the point that uh, Hu Yangbang and Zhao Ziyang were primarily to the former because they were given charge of a corruption crackdown, which is essentially a cash-making situation because the better you do it, the more people would piss off and then the more people would want to take you down. So do you, do you view that Huang uh, Qishan getting the head of the CDSC is a way of maneuvering him and they can uh, not be able to do much as a CDSC member? Who's volunteering? Okay, this that's one for you, question. I think, also. Okay. That's your... Then they can choose not to answer. That's... No, no, not you. It's the lady at the back. Um, is in a way um, is embedded from the state. 
and but in Punjab's it should uh, it should be the relation becomes more ambiguous if not that the, if not the state is taking retaking over the civil society. So what do you think would be the relationship to say, the civil society in the next generation? I'll take one last question from, from this batch, uh, and then we'll go to the panel. Uh, thank you very much. I also have a question about Chinese foreign policy history-making. Um, I wonder if all of you accept or rather problematize the rational actor model, whether Chinese leadership has the basic, uh, uh, as the you know, baseline expectation for national interest, whether they would provoke war, in order to mobilize the national sentiments to strengthen their leadership legitimacy, or they have the basic idea about where their national interest is. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Um, I'll, st- I'll start in the same order <coughs> as, as we had earlier. So, so you want to wish what you wish to answer and so on. Let Let me just do. Uh, I'll deal with the foreign policy issues and then. Um, Atar and Debin can uh, deal with some of the societal economic issues. Just one comment on the financial crisis uh, in the future scenario first. I simply don't believe in it. I mean, I think China, unless something goes terribly, terribly wrong politically, has a lot going for it still in terms of how its economy develops and also in terms of how the financial sector is managed. So, you know, I'm someone who is reasonably well known for listing up the challenges and the problems that China is facing. I do not think that necessarily, let me underline that, necessarily uh, future economic growth is, is one of them if this is handled in a way uh, that avoids political meltdown. Mm-hmm. Now, on Xi Jinping and his approach to international affairs. Yeah, I I think it's probably true that he is a bit of an instinctive nationalist. I think it's come out in a lot of things that he's been saying so far, um, what he was saying before he took over. Uh, There is, um, he uses often a turn of phrase with regard to China, and particularly with regard to criticizing those abroad who are criticizing China, that you wouldn't really have found among the previous leadership. They would have been much too cautious to do these kinds of things. I mean, they were much too cautious to do most things or say most things. Um, and as he's shown in the United States and he also shown on another foreign trip, Xi Jinping is someone who likes to shoot back on these kinds of things. Mm. Um, the question is, what will he then actually do? I mean, you know, how far is he willing to take that? We have had leaders in the past internationally who can speak the language of nationalism. And obviously there is... You know, this is not just about the party. There is a great deal of popular nationalism, even ultra-nationalism within China today, that the party doesn't govern um, and doesn't steer in any, any meaningful way. Can Xi Jinping make use of nationalist ret- rhetoric in a way to undermine some of these more extreme positions? That's possible if he's clever, if he's smart, and if he believes that he has enough support, uh, going again to what Debin said. I think that is, you know, that's possible. We don't have many indications of that so far, and much of his rhetoric, I think will not necessarily be helpful, particularly, for instance, in the, in the uh, relationship to Japan. Rational actors. Well, this, this cuts to the core, I think, of what China's biggest foreign policy problem is. It doesn't have an international strategy. I mean, this is regarded as being the other rising power in the world. And what China has been studiously avoiding during Hu Jintao's time in power is to have anything like what my 
different at uh, Beidat, Peking University, Wang Yisu, in a very famous article in Foreign Affairs called The Grand Strategy. I mean, China doesn't have a grand strategy. It doesn't know what it wants to do with its own power or with the world except getting more for China. And that may be very laudable, but it's not a foreign policy strategy. <laughs> and it certainly isn't a grand strategy in any form. Now, there are, there are problems connected to this. When a power rises as fast as China and the surrounding world, especially the immediate neighbors, do not get reasonably clear signals about where China wants to go when it has risen, uncertainty, conflict, and difficulties that probably otherwise could have been avoided are almost certain to ensue. So making use of a format for Chinese decision-making, and this is what I always say in Beijing, that emphasizes national interest is probably a good thing. I mean, it would be a good thing for the surrounding world. It would be a good thing for China. Now, I, I don't expect, I mean, being a, 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 someone who is known to criticize um, the rational actor model in terms of international affairs, I mean, I don't expect the Chinese to be better at this than, any, than anyone else. But there is absolutely nothing wrong in trying. I mean, trying to define what China's interests are in this broader sense um, and make that clearer. That won't frighten people. What will frighten people is the great deal of uncertainty that exists about what China's actual aims are. And that gives those people who really want to hold China back, and there are those in the world as well, I mean, make no, no, uh, uh, I have no doubts about that, uh, everything to go on in terms of creating the kind of suspicion about what China really wants to achieve. Thank you. Right. Uh, just about um, domestic crisis, I don't think that uh, in all, all the uh, forecasts about banking or financial crisis in China haven't materialized. But on the other hand, they haven't been completely pointless. What they pointed to is the necessity of reform in certain areas. The previous banking crisis was really a pointer, not that China will have a major financial crisis, of the necessity to reform the state-owned enterprise sector. And actually, yes. It was dealt with properly. Now, what the present sort of financial problems point to is really developing intergovernmental fiscal relations, which is requires a great deal of bargaining and negotiation between the central government and sub-central government. It's a tiring task, and I'm not clear that any of the of the present leadership is actually quite keen to take over the task. But the Chinese government is perfectly in a perfectly strong position to prevent actually a crisis, but obviously it will remain a problem as long as it is actually solved. And urbanization, really, the problem is that is China has already got more than 50% of people in urban areas. And next 10 years, or 15 years, another 300 million people are going to shift from the countryside to city. And if you think of migrants, what China is producing, unless it actually adopts a different policy, is actually a permanently depressed class within its city. So the 220 or, or million migrants actually are people who are not going to go back to the countryside, but on the other hand, they do not have the same opportunities and possibilities as open to ordinary citizens. 
So I think I'll, I'll stop. Right. Okay. I'll, I'll try to be as quickly as quick as possible. I think first, I think the the, the point about Wang Qishan being yeah. in charge of the disciplinary. Uh, I mean, I I don't know much about it. I mean, we know that Wang Qishan is, is one of the extremely capable. You know, it's clear the reformer is praised by everybody, including Li Guangyu, who was who is the best advocate for anything. Um, and the, the news is also, you know, he's been reading, I think, Alex Tocqueville's book, the, you know, right on the eve of the French Revolution. So there's a real sense that, you know, corruption is something related to the regime's survival. But again, you know, emphasize it here, it's the regime's survival they're worried about. So how serious they're worried about corruption, we don't know. If you know how this whole disciplinary committee, how it works, it works within the party system. You know, you actually don't need such high-level crackdown. All you need is more independent party monitoring. You know? uh, and but that even could do at a very local level. But that has much stronger implications. My own view is, one way or another, you have to move that slowly. But you know, certainly, I don't. I don't advocate any very quickly. Very quickly about financial crisis. I, I think that's a very very big topic. But let me say a couple of things. I I don't think there's any worry about exchange rate crisis. I think China has the world's, actually it's the reverse problem, has the world's largest uh, foreign currency reserve. The next one, Japan, you know, is three times more than Japan had. And the problem with China, they have too much money, mostly parked in very low-yielding U.S. government securities. So they are funding this whole U.S. fiscal deficit. But there is a very big problem with banking and so on. These issues need to be sorted out, and I I think the money crisis is coming up if that is open up. Very quickly come back to the foreign policy. One of the issues that that's I've been always, you know, the thing about boosting legitimacy through a certain form of nationalism, to a certain degree, worked out very well after the Tiananmen Square incident. I think there is a real problem with with legitimacy right after that because the building was fell. And what the Jiang Zemin actually devised a strategy that worked out very effective. Every time you target people outside, it's much easier to do because you've got a billion people to say, you know, the, the the people giving the trouble is, is not us, it's someone outside. But I, I think that is a strategy probably that needs to be thinking. Uh, to come back to the earlier question about you know, what Xi Jinping was saying about resurgence or renaissance of the Chinese nation and the Minzu Fuxing and so on. Now, I, I would want to wait to, to see a little bit more because if you know a little bit about Chinese history, not just East Asian history uh, at all, the entire modernization, starting from Japan, is driven by national, you know, nationalism. So that's very much in the genes of, of Korea, of, of all the other countries. And this is probably, so in my view, this is not just issue of leadership. You know, part of it, you know, even within China, the nationalist rhetoric has a very large following. Precisely, if you read a text, if you read... And there's nothing wrong with, you know, to some degree with, with nationalism. That's, that's true everywhere. I mean, it's certainly true with the U.S. The whole core national interest they copy as a counter against the, uh, the U.S. But, but I think this is the, the phase they have followed through. And it is time, really, with, when the world was, was becoming more global integrated, that there is a need for a cultural change. I, I find it is an encouraging sign that actually Xi Jinping received the... Uh, the, one of the uh, party chief from Japan. And, and that was a sign that he was, and they were talking about having a high level talk and so on. I think they got to start somewhere, but we, we have to wait and see on that particular issue. But I think the national is a, is a very serious issue. Uh, one, 
two, three, four, five. <laughs> himself as the fourth generation of leadership either. Um, as we all know, um, before the Xi Jinping came into power, there's a very fierce dispute among um, the oligarchs. So can we say that um, the Hu Jintao, or the leadership of Xi Jinping, is the point that um, it, is the big, it is the end of the strongman politics? And it's the beginning of the Olympic. And um, so the Xu Zheng Yongyan professor uh, said that the bargaining among the communists <coughs> would be more fierce in the future, but the mechanism of negotiation would be more perfect and would be more um, like, uh, yes. <laughs> I can trust you. Yeah, okay, yes. perfect, yes. Um, so the democracy will the democracy among the, the, the communism will be introduced. So in the near future, democracy of the whole country will be realized in the long term. So how do you think of it? Thank you. Mm. Sorry about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I have two foreign policy questions. One <coughs> question of the deteriorating relationship between China and Japan, and why, why it's been deteriorating so quickly in the last, in, in, in the last year or so. Um, you, you mentioned the imperial overstretch, but there's another theory out there that says it wasn't actually hubris, it, it was fear on the side of the, of the Chinese government um, that has sort of fueled all of this. And I do, I, I do put more of the blame probably on the Chinese side. The Japanese kicked it off, but the Chinese are making more of a fuss these days. So fear in what sense? Fear of Japan? No, well, internal fear. Fear of during the leadership transition. Right. Fear of internal nationalism. And do you feel that this fed into the more assertive behavior towards Japan? But also... This is where maybe the theory falls down a bit with regards to South China Seas. You know, why, why pick on Vietnam and the Philippines if you're worried about um, about people going on the streets in Beijing? And the second question regards North Korea. And do you think that China's patience with North Korea might be um, might be exhausted, given also that current sort of standoffs, military standoffs, are happening on the high seas? And sort of traditional strategic thinking of China was always you need to maintain North Korea as a buffer against the American bridgehead, which is South Korea. Sure. And do you think that that kind of thinking might be might be fading into the past? And that because of that, and the fact that <coughs> North Koreans seem hell bent on developing missiles that can also hit Beijing, 
that they might at some point say, well, we must it up. Thank you. Yes, and then the last one. <coughs> follow-up or whatever. No, I, I can go. That's fine. Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. If you want to... Um, I mean, I, well, maybe let me very quickly first talk about the point of democracy. Um, I mean, it's an issue I, I to a certain degree, have been thinking about a lot and talking about the Wuding Ho and all. You know, this is something that for one part of nationalism, actually, a lot of generation of Chinese thinking, that's, that's ultimately the goal. Uh, but I think in the, in the case of China, I mean, the, it's, it's far more complicated. If you look at what's happening with the collapse of the Soviet Union and also with the Arab Spring, I'm not saying that you know, a, a rash turn towards democracy was it. But that certainly does not encourage the current leadership to go for a full term. Now, when you have the very positive examples of, say, Taiwan and South Korea, they, they went and made a transition to democracy. So I think, you know, in my view, it needs to go, but it probably should go slowly. And China, which being a much larger country, is, is a far more complicated issue. And it's something, a lot of problems you see today in China, you know, is, is you could clearly attribute to a lack of democracy, you know, the way that opinions were not reflected and so on. And the amount of money, the amount of money they invested in monitoring everything, you know, it's, it's more than a national what they can. What, you know, it, it was hugely costly. So at a certain point, it needs to find a proper way. 
But I think you have to really be very, very careful. You know, when I, one thing I look at is early 20th century constitutional Chinese government. And that turned out to be a very, very big disaster. I think we have to really look at the China's own history very, very carefully mm. to some degree. Okay. Um, let, let me say about, well, I don't have a lot. On the question of Syria, uh, Iran, my own view, uh, I think maybe the other two panelists will have more. I think China's position probably sticking to the, to the line is the reason they don't want to see Syria intervene was the very old line they don't want foreign intervention in any domestic affair. That was a line they've been holding for a long time. I think that line is becoming more and more unsustainable because it doesn't make a lot of sense in many ways. So I think that's that's part of reflection. Unlike Russia, who may have a much stronger interest to be just went along with with Russia. Any change on the policy of, of Tibet and Uyghur, I in my own view, that probably you will have to see much greater change in domestic Chinese policy because if you look at the way domestic Chinese policy, I think that's what Tao was, was already referring to, that you have a large number of you know, uh, rural residents treated as second-class citizens. The idea of multicultural plurality, that, that was not part of the, the agenda. I think that has to be, the minority has to be the whole uh, solution. So I think that's probably what I want to say. Yeah. Uh, one thing which comes out if you look at the discussion around the change of leadership is a lot of talk about political reform. You know, people did not go into details of political reform, but certainly it was often mentioned. So the question one would want to ask, uh, may, let me make a big, b basic point about democracy. That is, people, uh, countries introduce democracy not because the leaders or people in leading positions suddenly get converted to democratic ideas, but is actually out of force of necessity when it seems like the only way of governing. Because democracy is a very good mechanism for dealing with uh, differences of opinion and conflicts, and it actually avoids sort of costly mistakes. So wh wh what is becoming clear is that what, then you want to ask the question, what is the crucial change? which needs to take place in China. So I would start with the National People's Congress, which is something like a proto-parliament in China, which is a completely unrepresentative body. It does not represent people in proportion to population. It's already been discussed that is, the membership of the National People's Congress should be redefined in order to bring it line, uh, in, uh, in line of representation proportional to the population. And what needs to happen, which is discussed in China quite a lot, is huge reduction in number of party cadres who are represented in National People's Congress. There's something like 70% of representatives in the National People's Congress are actually party cadres. So that's, that would be an important step. So one test I would use is, is actually how far the reform of the National People's Congress goes. <coughs> the second test I would use is for the reduction role of the party is the disciplinary and judicial power of the party. I think in general, in China, it's going to abolish the larger, the, the work camps, because it just becomes completely dysfunctional. And there is a gathering opinion in China is to do away with labor camps 
But on the other hand, Shanghai, which is the party's internal disciplinary procedure, is still alive and kicking and, and actually gives the party a very important role. So it would crucially depend on the rule of law in China depends on whether you have one judicial system which actually applies to everything or whether you have a series of silos, judicial system which apply to different uh, people. So I'm not sure how far this change would take place, but and then the turning to question of exchange rate policy. <laughs> I think it's a max game to say whether exchange rate is overvalued, undervalued, because the evidence you need is completely idiosyncratic. So what else do you expect if you're an American official spokesman except to say that the, uh, the Chinese RMB is overvalued? There is nothing it's like the Pope saying God exists. <laughs> <laughs> what about the question about the transition to the from, from export-oriented to domestic? I think that uh, th there is transition taking place, but on the other hand, the task is actually huge. Yes. And so if you take into account various things happen, like increasing the minimum wage, it goes somewhere towards that, and also developing the social security system. But I think if you take into account the magnitude of task, it's huge. There is no way, regardless of policy, there's something which can be done in a few years. Could, could I add up very quickly? I mean, there is, there is a recently a special issue in the Journal of Economic Perspective that talk about some of the issues. There's a paper by Dennis Young actually talking about, now they have massive amount of access saving in the households, and particularly, well, not so much in the households, the government, and, and in, in the state enterprise. So what they, they need to find a way, I think his analysis is basically when they <coughs> open up, they still had this mentality of export-oriented oriented economy. So they, all kind of policy promoting export have not gone away. Mm. And that has, in the end, has very, very serious consequences. A lot of the other problems has to do with the banking sector. The banking sector was dominated by the state, was extremely inefficient, provided very little, and the stock market was completely hopeless. So there's very little opportunity, outlets, for personal savings to go. And this is, so it's, it's a much complicated problem. It's, it's, I believe it's an institutional problem. Okay, now on, on the foreign policy issues, let me let me try to deal with those because there are quite a few of them. Yeah. Um, Japan, I mean, the question, why so quickly? I mean, why have relations deteriorated as fast as they actually have? I think your explanation is probably the best one that I have as well. I mean, it is, it is fear of, not so much internal unrest, it's fear of internal nationalism. I mean, there's this old saying in China about nationalism, uh, actually much used by previous generations of communists themselves, that proclaiming nationalist slogans is like riding the tiger. You know, you, it's good for as long as it can serve your purposes and goes in the direction you want to go in, but you better hold very, very close, um, a close grip on the tiger's ears, because if you fall off, it's going to devour you. So there is something about that. I think there is a fear of nationalism among many communist leaders. They've seen how this has worked in the past. They have seen how easily this can be turned against the leadership. I often use the story, I lived in China in 1989. It was extremely interesting to see how many of my students, very brave 
young people who demonstrated full democracy and openness in the streets uh, against corruption and against Japan, <laughs> all at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, those of us who believe in criticizing the CCP, that all good things go together, it's not quite like that. So I think this is one where the party has gotten into trouble because it doesn't know how it can steer policy in another direction, even though many of them will know that that would be good for China. And it's a direct challenge for young Chinese who are here today to think about that for a while. Now, where this really becomes a problem uh, in terms of how the regime is going to proceed, not so much with regard to Japan, because I think we can explain to some extent where this comes from, is with regard to Southeast Asia. Um, because there... China had its biggest foreign policy success over the last hundred years. Uh, over a generation, led by Deng Xiaoping's initiatives, to build a good cooperative relationship to the region, which could be said in, in economic terms, in resource terms, is the most important region for China anywhere in the world. Um, and then risking throwing so much of that away uh, by emphasizing China's me-first foreign policy with regard to the South China Sea is very hard to explain. Mm. I mean, it is, it is really very, very hard to explain that. They just had the agreement of a free trade zone with ASEAN, uh, which would in reality create the largest free trade area by far in the world, in the most dynamic, so expansive uh, uh, economic regions. And much of that has also now been put on the back door because of this conflict. Why does this happen? I mean, this is where I think the idea about overstretch is... You know, it, it helps us to some extent. They thought they could do things that they couldn't do. They thought, based on history, that great powers behave in a certain way. I mean, looking not least at the United States. By forcing others to agree to what is important for them. Now, that's a bad history lesson that these people have had, if, if that is what they thought uh, would, be the, would be the idea. And then, finally, on Syria and Iran. No, actually, let me do North Korea first, just very, very quickly because we haven't really had a chance to respond to this. I agree that North Korea is by far the most dangerous conflict that you find within the region today. It's, in my view, the most dangerous conflict anywhere in the world, and the last, um, the latest uh, nuclear test by the North Koreans, of course, made it even worse than, than what it was earlier on. What can China do about it? Now, the first thing to get out of your head is that there is some kind of logical connection here between China and North Korea. <coughs> China has been holding up the North Korea regime, but that's mainly because of the fear of consequences for its collapse. I mean, I know a number of people in Beijing who work on North Korean affairs. The more they learn about North Korea, the more they detest it. <laughs> I'd, uh, I've yet to meet one senior Chinese foreign policymaker who's anything good in private to say about North Korea. What they are afraid the same of... same is true of North Koreans. Uh, well, about Chinese. I, I think it's probably even more, even more true. I mean, the problem with the North Koreans is that they more or less detest absolutely everyone, <laughs> Chinese or not. Um, there is actually, I mean, there is a very clear racism to that regime, and I use that term deliberately, which is well worth looking at, I mean, about racial uniqueness uh, 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 with regard to Koreans. But let's put that aside. What can China do? Well, China obviously needs to do something, uh, and it needs to do more than what it's doing at the moment. I think using uh, economic pressure is the key. I think if North Korea now uh, is able to get away with openly defying China, 
not just defined, we're making a fool of Beijing, I mean, with, with regard to the, to the nuclear test. And it has no consequences whatsoever for the economic relationship between China and North Korea. Then the new leadership will have entirely lost the plot. I think they, they do need to show uh, that they will not be treated like this, frankly. I mean, going back to the nationalism in Chinese foreign policy, it's very interesting, by the way, on that. Increasingly among the people I work with in Beijing, these kinds of attitudes seem to, go to, seem to go together. I mean, people who are rather hardline on Japan, very hardline on the United States, also increasingly become rather hardline on North Korea. Because they think that having one ally in the whole world being the North Koreans, and they basically treat you like shit. I mean, that is a problem. I mean, it's not just a problem in China's North Korean relations, it's a problem for whatever China wants to do internationally. Not just, with, uh, not just with regard to the region, but outside the region. And finally, on Iran and Syria. Um, uh, I think much of this has to do with principles of sovereignty, as has been said already. I think it has to do with the disastrous consequences of the American invasion and occupation of Iraq and how this was played in China. Um, I think for that reason, some of it is rather knee-jerk, some of it particularly with regard to Syria in the early phase, was set off by this perceived pseudo-alliance with Russia. Now, it's clear, sort of halfway through the Syrian crisis, that a lot of people in Beijing discovered that the Russians hadn't quite been playing this the way that that, that China wanted, and then tried tried very quickly to take a few steps back, back. I think the Syrian crisis is a very good example of the immaturity of Chinese foreign policy in general. Of course, what they should have done on Syria was not so much being focused on what had happened in Iraq or or opposition to US international hegemony or what the Russians told them. They should have looked at what was in this for China and particularly learning from the Libyan Libyan crisis which China didn't get out of very well either. So it is a learning process Um, as it has been with other powers in the past that rise quite rapidly to great international power. China is not different from that. Look at American foreign policy during the 1920s and 1930s. It wasn't exactly led by giants who, who were able to make international decisions you know, overnight that had enormous positive consequences for the world society. That's not how it was. Um, so I think China is, in, in many ways, in, in that learning process. The problem is that it has to learn very fast. And it has to learn about how to take systemic responsibility and not just responsibility for itself. Nobody's yet answered the point about the new generation. I was actually thinking I'd have a good answer. Mm. Um, I mean, you're saying the impact of the generation on on the outlooks and so on? Well, I mean, uh, basically the relationship between the shared, the shared background and the the, the impact and the experience that that brought on the policy domestic. You can just agree that it's important without saying anything more. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Community has followed in Syria it would have been a tragedy. There, there is no easy way out. So in some sense, something like the civil war which is going on would have happened in Syria in any case. And the, 
you know, it may have taken different forms, partly because of the nature of the society, it's kind of deep division, religious and historic division within society. And finally, a comment about North Korea and why Chinese are frightened. Well, not, not only with the nuclear test, but the, another thing to be extremely frightened about North Korea is that missiles are extremely inaccurate. They can go 500 kilometers in any direction. <laughs> <laughs> they, may, they may try to hit Tokyo when they're by mistake. You know, <laughs> I've got t- two questions and I'll take, I'll take more. Um, okay, yes, especially from there. Okay, so three more. Two but, questions first. Along then Satya. But whatever you do, do speak up because yes. my ears are clogged up. And then no, there are no more questions after those. Okay, along. This time of the evening, so that's good. <laughs> not, not too many. Well, I, no, it's two, it's two. I, I selected two uh, out of ten. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had a chance to, to, to go back to China during the Christmas and, and I had a chance to listen to how local people in Beijing talk about the new leadership. Mm. And so I think, you know, their kind of gossip is in a way uh, important for our sure. understanding of the uh, well, not that surprising to me that they don't talk about serious matters like foreign policy, currency, or national resources out of their territory. What they did talk about instead are really physical tributes of our leaderships, of our, of our new leaders, mm. such as whether Xi Jinping has some enough, yeah. whether it looks like it, but uh, an emperor in, a, in, a, in, in some dynasty, Xin dynasty, whether that signifies <laughs> all seizures or this like that. So actually, it seems to me that the Chinese people really have a very 
peculiar obsession on the physical attributes of the leaders in terms of, you know, a speech or whatever, you know, things. And I think, you know, that might be a supporting solidarity for them, you know, for your understanding of their leaders. The second thing is that actually it's very disappointing for me to see seven swordsman male figures constituting the new leaders without any female. Mm. And actually even, even more disappointing for me to, to, to see that this important gender issue has never been raised during the whole discussion. And, uh, and, and I think it's a common sense for us to see, you know, any revolution or reform within the system doesn't make any sense in terms of fundamental change, but the real change comes from culture and social movement. So would you, would you, would you, Professor, would you like to say anything about the implications, implications of the new leadership on the really cultural change, possible cultural change of the country, uh, in terms of, you know, changing people's perception of what is good, what is right, instead of, you know, just, um, you know, very mechanical. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, there were, was it you next? I think, I think there were. Yeah, okay, fine. It's, my question is actually a follow-up to the previous few mm. minutes. How much is China's reluctance to pick a leadership role in the international scene mm. and their reluctance as well to implement reforms predicated on a sense of self-preservation? In other words, mm. we are in power under the current construct must maintain the current construct at any cost because it will provide us um, security and our ability to maintain power for the future. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, I'm going Is greater than the budget for the military. Yeah. 
uh, if you take out the research and development of nuclear weapons. So, I'm sorry, there was, there was one other question. Is, is someone anxiously waiting to ask a question? Could I? Could I? Could I just respond? I mean, I'm just wanting to say in, 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 in sort of summing this all up, and and was because my voice is giving in, when drawing together some of the questions that were asked here in this, in this final round, why are these people so afraid? I mean, why, when I go to Beijing, and I spend a lot of time there, uh, you know, this is a country that has gone through 30 years of very high-level economic development. A lot of things have gone right for China, and domestically and internationally. Very large number of people have been lifted out of poverty. I mean, what everyone says about the current leadership, that is true. I just spent a month in India. Um, you know, I have to draw some comparisons between China and India. India is doing pretty well economically, but it ain't no China, you know, in terms of the developments over the last 30 years. So why are its leaders so fearful uh, during the last regime, during this regime? What is it that they are so afraid of? Well, I think the problem is the basic lack of legitimacy. I mean, they, they know that they're not a legitimate government in the sense that they have never been able to call on their people in any meaningful form for their support. They might have gotten that support. I think, I mean, I actually think that it's very likely that during a fairly long period of, of what, you know, what we're talking about a historical time, 30 years, they would probably have gotten that. But they never dared ask. Um, and now when things are changing, and changing very rapidly, both outside of China and inside the country itself, they're more fearful than ever uh, for asking, you know, for the direct support of the people. Now, I'm not among those who believe that China will become, or even that it would necessarily be good for China to become a democracy in any Western sense overnight, or, or, or even very quickly. But it's the opposite that is the problem. There is a basic lack of the kind of pluralism that any society needs in order to be able, in a meaningful way, of handling crisis and handling transitions. I mean, that, that, that is the big problem. And the reason why that is not there is not Chinese people. It, it is those who are leading it. And that, I think, <coughs> is the reason why they are so worried about the future. Um, I think there will be very good reasons, and many different ways, in which the current leadership could be dealing with that without saying we're going to throw overboard everything that the party has done during all of its history. Um, but I also do think that if China goes through another eight to ten years of the same kind of attempts continuously to postpone the political and the social problems in the country, then the situation at the end of these guys' tenure will really not be very good. And it's a question of whether time then would have run out for the kind of structural reform in a political and also to some extent social sense that China needs to be, to be undertaken. That's, uh, that's my summing up of what the situation is like. Right. Uh, in, in the statement which Xi Jinping has made recently, there are two events he indirectly referred to. He did refer to, in one of his speeches, the Arab Spring. And yes, also, he also mentioned in another of his speeches about Gorbachev and what Gorbachev's mistake of starting reform and then con confronted with the instability. So this actually, in terms of their perception, is the narrow path of the reform. That is, 
in Arab, the reference to Arabic Spring is recognition of the fact that China cannot keep on postponing political reform. If you did, as many of the Arab countries did, then it might actually confront, be confronted with a situation like Arab Spring. But the Gorbachev reference is really where the caution comes in. That is, the reading in China is that Gorbachev actually failed because he implemented reforms, not because, as some other people say, that he waited too long to bring in the reforms. So I think that the question is still not resolved, but really fear of instability still haunts the present leadership. I would also make a statement about legitimacy. That is, in modern history, China's nationalism has actually rested on defending China against threat outside world. If you take May the 4th as the, the, as the springboard of the Chinese nationalism, it's really a threat to the Chinese territory and people coming from foreigners. But this is not a good basis yes. to sustain Chinese nationalism. And this is where it links to the question of you know, being a victim. Because the Chinese people these days, at least, don't always believe that they are victims and they have to fear the outside world. So ultimately, the only major source, a sustainable source of legitimacy in modern world is democracy. I mean, there is no other, it cannot be religion. It cannot be fear of outside because you cannot sustain a government purely on question of fear, fear of war and actually threat from the outside. So I think that's really the problem which would also come back in the issue of Chinese reform is really what is the basis for uh, legitimacy of the present government. I, I will try to speak very fast uh, to touch as any points as, as raised. Uh, I, I, was, I want to thank for the, uh, you know, the information on the Southern Weekend uh, part of it. I mean, I certainly, the thing about Chinese Obviously, the media is, is, is non-transparent, but the fact that this whole thing got to that point, that there is actually editorial being removed that was open, I thought that was, to some degree, uh, quite something. You know, I guess the way you look at China, probably you have to take several steps back and not using the standard uh, that, that we see in, in the West. Mm. And also, I would like to see uh, you know, China eventually living up to the standard. Um, a couple of very quick points about... Um, you know, whatever dilemma of China, you know, in some sense, you know, I think both panelists, uh, all panelists have mentioned, and it was, it was actually very striking. Democracy was always connected with nationalism. That's coming from May Force Movement. The logic was very, very simple. The reason that we were being beaten by the foreigners is because the government, the dictatorship government was very bad. So to have a democracy, so that democracy would be strong government, and eventually it will you know, whatever foreign aggressors. So there is that very intriguing linkage that has always been there. With the, and it's actually quite surprising, some of the agitation for confrontation with Japan. You see yep. these very active democracy people on the front line. If you, if you look at those people who went to Daoyuan and Hong Kong, right, those people have been anti-China for a long time. They were, they were the ones who were advocating for complete democracy. You know, so that's a very, very tricky combination. And that probably has to go back to, to history. The other point I wanted to raise earlier, coming back to why it has deteriorated so much further recently, I think there is a sense with rapid economic growth 
that unlike before, that China's bargaining position changed. You know, Deng Xiaoping's very famous book, Lotto, what is abiding your time and so on. So a lot of the things that we do, all these things, is that we were, we were relatively weak. We, were fight, we don't want to fight war that you can't win. And that itself is, is where the trouble lies. And the reason that there will be, a, for example, you know, sort of endangering all these Japanese investment in China, precisely because they felt China has gotten to a point that we don't have to worry about, as, as Deng Xiaoping did in the 1980s. This is a mentality that I think was, to a certain degree, very important to understand what was going on, and potentially uh, quite dangerous. And let me get back to the history and also the legitimacy question a little bit. I mean, I can see that, you know, if you're really looking at Chinese history, the legitimacy of any government was never very high. The imperial government uh, had a bit more legitimacy in the sense they made up this whole story about, you know, the emperor was, was sacred and so on. Now, the Chinese government, that was gone, but it was, it was, so I think it's always been relatively low. It didn't have the kind of dynamism that, that, that you would see. Uh, the point I was trying to make, I think history and tradition was very, very important that, you know, she pointed out what people inside China are talking about, the physical attributes of a leader, that, you know, those things that are completely irrelevant, but they were considered something, you know, what Mao did, you know, even to some degree in the great famine or, or his own personal life was, was rather accepted inside China. So this is a, this issue, you can talk about it as a cultural tradition, but my, my real dilemma is in a country where you don't have a lot of open debates, a lot of open information, how do you get started? <coughs> so it is culture as much as, as it is institution. You know, the final point is about territorial claims. If you read, you know, we grew up using all the Chinese history textbooks. I think I was in China, they actually were saying, you know, the idea of a Chinese claim over territory is somebody... 800, 1,000 years ago has visited there or a Chinese woman was married there then that belonged to China. <laughs> According to that logic, you know, the Hmong belonged to China because there was a very famous legend a Chinese woman was lending actual food there and so on. So, but the point is, now at a time when China felt it was relatively weak, it wouldn't go and do that. But if, if the position is that our position was strong enough, that's potentially an extremely dangerous position. And that combination was very strangely mixed with, with democracy activists, and that's where partly part of the trouble was going to lie. Well, thank you for the panelists, and thank you for the audience. I want to have one last word, which is from the point of view of someone who sees the society in China from below, as the questioner over there does too. Um, one point about gender, which has been totally missing from this discussion. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and and, the, the, and the, the point about gender that I want to make is a sad one, is that there really isn't a women's movement in China. And that, the, that, the, that in fact, the achievements of, 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 of the women's movement have been reversed. Uh, with all the, the uh, strengthening of male attitudes towards women having to be cute <coughs> and feminine, uh, which is pretty bad in Japan, but it's even worse in China. And the... the, the uh, I think it's worse in Japan. Oh, worse in Japan. Okay. But, 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 it's, but, but, but in any case, the point I'm trying to, to draw here is that actually most changes that have occurred in China have actually come from below. It's the response of the top in very indirect ways to social movements from below, even when they're not 
social movements like 1989, where there's a, a vast gathering. There are countless protests and uh, named or counted as incidents in, in, by the central government. There are very, very many more than those counted incidents. And, they, and the Southern Weekly, the Southern Weekend or whatever, is, is, is an indication of exactly how changes have occurred. That is to say, brave newspapers expand the possibilities of what can be said. Uh, in the meantime, ordinary people, ordinary intellectuals as well as ordinary people can have conversations that are extremely insulting to the, to the, to the current leadership, not only whether they have, whether they have a, um, a beautiful face that is auspicious or not, but also that they have extremely ugly faces and that, 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 that what they expect um, from us is, 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 uh, is, is that we just have to bear with that leadership. There's a sense of self-reliance amongst ordinary people that I have met in which they, in which they, they are willing. They are saying we do things despite the government, and that that is a very promising sign. But it's also quite dangerous for the next ten years. So that's uh, we should get a female panelist. We should have got a female panelist. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I ask you to thank. You.